making a movie physically and mentally destroys you. You know, it just, it just does. It becomes such a labor of love that sometimes we neglect to look at it as a business. People lock into this idea that there is a correct way to do things. There's not. There's a million ways to do it. Video has become the most effective way to get people to do something that it is you want them to do. It's time for Filmmakers to Get Real with Jeffrey Michael Bayes and Forrest Day Jr. Welcome back to the uh, Get Real Indie Filmmakers podcast. Do you know enough about distribution to actually dive in and uh, start distributing your film when it's finished? Uh, that's the question we're asking today, and we're going to learn all about the intricacies of film distribution with the self-distribution guy, our guest today, a very special guest. It's a full-length interview with Jason Brubaker, of Filmmaking Stuff and Filmmaking Stuff HQ. Jason is an executive in Los Angeles, and he's an expert in digital VOD, video-on-demand distribution. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be able to share some of this info so uh, we can help a few more filmmakers avoid the shenanigans in the marketplace. <laughs> and when you say shenanigans, I, I know people <laughs> who have films out there, and they get distribution. Um, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's real distribution. Um, can you talk about the different types of distribution there are and and how to kind of filter through those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times what happens, just generally speaking, is filmmakers just take any sort of distribution deal because they think that all deals are created equal and getting distribution is the goal. Getting distribution is not the goal. The goal is for you to figure out a way to make this make business sense so that you can pay for your lifestyle. Um, some of you are supporting families or you want to support families. Uh, you're working a crappy day job and you want to get out of it. The last thing that you want to do in those situations is to take a distribution deal that doesn't pay anything or a distribution deal that promises to pay you something someday, maybe. Um, those sort of like vague, uh, you know, entries into the marketplace aren't really the types of things that you need to be thinking about as a professional film producer slash distributor. Um, and why I'm calling you a distributor is because ultimately, when it comes to your motion picture product, nobody's going to care about it more than you. It doesn't matter who you sign your distribution deal with. You know, at the end of the day, like, I, it's just one of these things that at the end of the day, what I found over time is the films that end up getting the best distribution deals may not necessarily need a distributor to be successful. And we can get into more of that here in a second. But Ultimately, what I want to do in our short conversation together is to start helping uh, you, if you're listening to this, start helping you frame your motion picture product and release strategy in such a way that you can manage it without the need for a distributor. And then if a distributor comes along, you're going to have a lot of power when it comes to negotiation because you've already done your homework and they need you more than you need them. Let's just describe the, the landscape of what distribution is today in 2019 because DVDs are, do they even exist anymore? That's my first question. And then what is the ultimate goal for a filmmaker? Should it be Netflix? Well, you know, you mentioned DVDs. Last holiday season, my wife and I were trying to watch like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation <laughs> and we own the DVD, but, you know, through through the last few years in upgrading all of our computers and our television and that kind of stuff, we realized we had no way to play a DVD anymore. And I don't, 
I don't think I'm alone in that, right? I think there's a lot of people out there right now that don't know how to play DVD anymore or don't care to play DVD anymore. And this is just the result of what's happened in the marketplace that we've gone from a physical world to a digital world. And now the expectation is I get to watch whatever I want to watch when I want to watch it. So that alone has changed distribution forever. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of distributors out there that prey on unsuspecting filmmakers and take their distribution rights, but then don't do a whole lot to help that filmmaker you know, attain profitability in the marketplace. And part of that is because um, you know, it's not one of these things where we can just go to Blockbuster Video and sell 10,000 DVDs anymore. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of, it's a little bit obscure out there in terms of how you can gain traction. Um, you talked about, you know, Netflix as being the sole goal and these kinds of things. I'm going to say like every one of these different distribution channels is not the end all be all. When it comes to distribution, it's, it's about building several different streams of income. And you know, to, to kind of really address that, I think I want to give you just an example of what distribution looks like um, from a digital perspective. So five years ago, you, you heard everybody start talking about VOD. VOD is an abbreviation for video on demand. And back in the day, all that simply meant was I can watch whatever I want to watch when I want to watch it, but I would watch it as a rental, right? So that would be like, I'm, gonna, I'm in VOD, I'm going to go rent, you know, whatever tonight for X number of days. And then, you know, over the past, you know, I would say just even, again, in the short five years since then, video on, on demand these days is broken into three very distinct yet very popular categories, uh, TVOD, SVOD, and AVOD. So TVOD is an abbreviation for transactional video on demand, SVOD is an abbreviation for subscription video on demand, and AVOD is an abbreviation for advertisement supported video on demand. Each one of these outlets, um, in terms of releasing your film, each one of these different categories of video on demand has strengths and weaknesses, but they all kind of come together in some sort of linear fashion where you start with TVOD, make as much money as you can there, then you move to SVOD, make as many deals as you can there, then you move to AVOD, which is pretty much you know ad-supported to where your film goes um, when you're moving on to other projects. So. Again, I think I'm just kind of painting a broad brushstroke of what the distribution landscape looks like. But we start out in transactional video on demand first and foremost, because as a pro, you can set a price. Um, You have no cap on your earning potential. The more sales you make, uh, the more revenue you make, the more you rise in the sales rankings on those particular platforms. And as that happens, the more you rise in the sales rankings, the more people discover your work. So this is a really good opportunity for people that have put together a project with like, you know, some sort of name talent that's already attracting an audience, some sort of like festival darling, some sort of like um, backyard indie that's, that's populated with social media stars. What we're trying to do is we're trying to glom onto the popularity of everybody that's involved in our project so that you transact, so that you get more rentals and you more, get more sales. And so... Using this release strategy, the next step in the process after transactional video on demand would be SVOD, which is subscription video on demand. Okay, so how long usually would a, a TVOD last? You, you'd stay in the TVOD window 
for as long as you're making good money and as long as your goals are being fulfilled, right? Some people, uh, some filmmakers just hit it out of the park with such a great release that it would be foolish of them to take a subscription deal because the minute you go into subscription, you're going to cannibalize your opportunity in transactional. There's one caveat to this though. Um, if Netflix is interested in your content, they typically want you to go live no more than 90 days after you've released in your transactional uh, video on demand window. Hmm. So what that means is if you and I went live with our movie that we made together today and we have a Netflix deal on the table, 89 days from today, we're going live on Netflix. And that, you know, on one hand, you're like excited because you get a Netflix deal. On the other hand, you're like, oh my gosh, but I'm making, you know, $1,200 a a day on on TVOD and and I'm only taking a $40,000 Netflix deal. You know, so you got to think about all these different variables too. Um, because it's not just about your ego. It's a, it's about your bank account and your ego typically doesn't, you know, pay your bills. Yeah. So, uh, when you're talking about TVOD, which platforms are we looking at? What are the big ones? The top TVOD platforms are iTunes, Amazon, Google play. Uh, I'd follow that with like Vudu, Fandango now, and some more specialized platforms like PlayStation or Xbox. Those are your top transactional video on demand platforms. Okay. So if you can show successful numbers in TVOD, then that helps you with your SVOD. Well, not necessarily. I know okay. this, <laughs> I know this is a little <laughs> bit vague, but, but you're usually making your Netflix deal and your SVOD deal at the same time that you're thinking about your TVOD strategy. Okay. So often what'll happen is you'll, you're going to want to try to see if you have an opportunity in subscription video on demand, even before you release in transactional especially because Netflix has this 90-day preference thing. Okay, so let's get into SVOD, uh, that subscription okay. video on demand. Okay, so now you're working on SVOD. So that, that's your Netflix and your Amazon Prime. Is that right? Yeah, those are two examples. Another one would be Hulu. And then, you know, throughout the world and in other countries overseas, there's a whole bunch of different SVOD platforms um, that are relatively new that are trying to gain market share that are trying to be the next Netflix competitor. But nonetheless, like if we're talking about Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime, um, Netflix and Hulu operate very similarly in the sense that if they're interested in content, they'll make an offer for one or two years. And if you accept the offer, oftentimes you're in an exclusive subscription video on demand deal. That means that you can't be on any other premium channel at the exact same time that you're in that SVOD deal. And what I mean by premium channel, I mean like HBO, Showtime, um, you know, any of these other platforms that might be a direct Netflix competitor. But you can be in transactional video on demand at the same time as SVOD because mm-hmm. those are two different categories of video on demand and it's sort of like comparing apples to oranges. So right. so while there is some overlap there in the sense that somebody's still going into their smart television to make a buying decision, in a sense, if you're, you know, if you're not really paying for anything because you already have a Netflix membership, that's not the same sort of buy. Okay, so when does AVOD come into the picture? Is that two or three years later? Yeah, your Netflix deal is actually going to expire in one or two years. And I, Netflix or Hulu or, or some of these other premium you know, subscription platforms, it's going to expire after one or two years. At that point, if that platform does not renew the agreement, um, then what will happen is before we go into AVOD, I would recommend we go over to Amazon Prime. You'd mentioned it, and I want to just make it clear that Amazon Prime works a little bit differently than Hulu 
and Netflix, where Hulu and Netflix pay a licensing deal for anything they're interested in. Amazon Prime um, is going to pay you based on engagement. And I believe at the time of this conversation, they've recently changed the way that they pay, but I believe it's anywhere from $0.04 to $0.10 per every hour viewed based on engagement. Now, that based on engagement part is a little bit vague because nobody, unless you're working at Amazon, um, nobody really knows what that secret sauce is. But I assume it's going to be people that actually watch the content, people that actually search for the content, people that actually leave comments and all those kinds of things. That might be considered engagement and that might help you get a little bit of a better um, you know, revenue tier than if you didn't have that stuff going for you at all. Um, but I would recommend going into Amazon Prime, obviously, after Netflix and Hulu um, because it's a good place to be. But uh, again, you don't want to go in there right out of the gate because it, it can cannibalize your transactional video on demand offerings. Now, while you're mm, in yeah. Am- yeah, and while you're in Amazon Prime, I, I know this is a lot to fit into like a short interview, um, but while you're in Amazon Prime, you know, that's when you start thinking about AVOD and And the way I think of ad-supported video on demand is that's really where you take your content when you're ready to move on to other projects. Okay, cool. So that's your that's your landscape of what you're you know aiming for as a filmmaker with a film trying to get distribution. Now you you're a big proponent of self-distribution, which is going around the distributors, right? And so what we need to look for is an aggregator. And you say that oftentimes aggregators will describe themselves as a distributor. So how do you, how can you tell the difference? Yeah, I know it gets a little bit murky and and that's because this is an ever evolving sort of, you know, way to reach the marketplace. Again, it's similar to what we saw in music. It's similar to what we've seen in publishing. It's where these big companies have sort of like, they, they used to control the keys to the kingdom, but now everything's sort of leveled out a bit, just like the internet has done that for every business. Um, or a lot of businesses. So what we're looking at here when we're describing an aggregator versus a distributor, it it really comes down to how the deal works, right? If you go and work with an aggregator and you pay them a flat fee up front, and that flat fee covers ingestion, encoding, quality control, review, uh, mastering, and delivery to the various platforms, and they're not taking a percentage of every dollar you make, but they operate solely on a flat fee per service model, then in that scenario, in a sense, you become the distributor. And just like other distributors, you're working with a vendor to handle all the lab work and the delivery, right? So that that's a flat fee per service aggregator. And, and that's what I'm describing as an alternative to a distribution deal. To make it even more murky though, a lot of flat fee per service aggregators will now do traditional distribution deals if the content warrants it. So they'll waive their upfront flat fee per service. And what they'll do is they'll say, hey, you know what? We'll take a percentage on the back end. We'll cover the cost. We'll make that a recoupable expense. Um, and now we're in business together in, in very much a traditional uh, sense. So, you know, so I guess the difference between an aggregator and a digital distributor um, in a very sort of blunt way is are they taking a percentage off the back end for X number of years? Then you're in a distribution deal. If it's a flat fee per service deal, then you're self-distributing. Now, when you say flat fee, is that a one-time flat fee or is that uh, yearly? Because I know really, like in the music industry, you, you pay a certain fee every year. Well, yeah, and it really depends on what uh, aggregation partner you're working with. I do a lot of work with a company called Distribber, 
Uh, and over at Distributor, the way that it works is you play the fat, the flat fee per service, and then it's um, it, it's like nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents per quarter is what they would retain, and then after the first year, it's two hundred dollars a year. Um, and this is per feature film. So obviously, you have to decide for yourself whether or not you're going to make the kind of revenue to support that. Which, by the way, I, I hope that your feature film is making more than two hundred dollars a year, or you know, at that point, it may not be worth it to go into the marketplace. And that's when we get into marketing, right? So marketing really is the most important aspect of this. Uh, let's take a quick break. And then, Jason, we can get into some marketing. We can ask him some marketing questions, some things that filmmakers need to start thinking about as early as possible. We'll be right back with Jason Brubaker right after this. That's one thing Alfred Hitchcock was really good at, creating suspense with a camera. For the last couple of years, I've been teaching Hitchcock suspense techniques at festivals like Buffalo, St. Louis, Palm Springs, Los Angeles. Filmmakers are learning easy tricks for building suspense that are so easy to implement. Now there's a way for you to get access in my new book, Suspense with a Camera. It's available in bookstores now. And don't miss our free docuseries on YouTube called Hitch 20. If you'd like to contact the show, tell us what we should be talking about, tweet us at BorgesFilm or email info at Borges.com. We're talking with Jason Brubaker of FilmmakingStuff.com and FilmmakingStuffHQ.com. Jason, we were talking about distribution and all of the options that filmmakers have available and self-distribution and finding an aggregator. But in order for all of this to work... Marketing has to come into it, right? And and this is something that is on the filmmaker for the most part. Nobody else is going to do this for you. Well, yeah. I mean, like every rule, right? There, there's different scenarios where, like, like here's a scenario where that doesn't make sense. Like you make a film and one of the major motion picture studios comes along and they give you a fat minimum guarantee and they're like, we'll take it from here. And then they do a wide theatrical release and they do like, you know, $100 million in marketing. Yeah, you're on your own. You're not going to do that kind of thing. But that that deal that I just described, you know, that's sort of the fuel that, that keeps a lot of filmmakers going. It's always based on the hope that you are one of the lucky few to win that lottery. But what I'm speaking to today are the folks that don't win that lottery. I'm speaking to the folks that, you know, need to have a plan B. And I believe that all of us as filmmakers should you know, not our, our plan B should be our plan A. And if something awesome comes out of it, then, then so be it. So what I mean by that is we go back to the scenario of, of not depending on a distributor to tell us how much money our film is worth, but rather we start this conversation by saying, all right, I just made a film. How much money do I want to make with this film? And I know that's kind of a goofy question, but imagine for a second that we weren't on this you know, podcast talking about filmmaking, but we were talking about the t-shirt business. And you and I decided like, well, we're in the t-shirt business. We love making t-shirts. 
it, it would be kind of absurd for us to say like, well, how much do you think our t-shirt's worth? Um, that's up to us to decide, right? We got to decide on not only the price that we sell our t-shirt, but how many t-shirts we need to sell per quarter to hit our revenue goal. I, I mean, I, I know a lot of filmmakers have jobs outside of the industry, especially as you're working to level up your career. So you only need to look as far as your day job to figure out how business works. And business is based on sales, right? So the more sales you make, the more revenue you make. And nothing starts without a sale. So if we go back and we kind of apply the same sort of entrepreneurial business paradigm to our motion picture, our film is just a product that we're bringing to the marketplace. And if we're strictly talking about transactional video on demand, which is the first window, then that t-shirt analogy works perfectly because instead of saying, how many t-shirts am I going to sell? You're saying, how many units of my film am I going to sell? And, and that's where you start to really dig in a little bit more. So I want to give an example. If I say I made this backyard indie and in my mind I made it for 50 grand, but my goal is to make $100,000, then I got to ask myself, how many units do I need to sell to make $100,000? And the answer to that is, well, it depends where I'm going to release my film. But if I release it on Google Play, for example, which is a 70-30 split in my favor, and I use a flat fee per service aggregator, and I sell it for $10 a pop, that means that I keep $7 a pop. Which means yeah. if I divide, you know, seven a hundred thousand dollars by seven, it's fourteen thousand two hundred and eighty-six units. So now the best question you can ask yourself as a filmmaker is how the heck am I gonna move fourteen thousand two hundred and eighty-six units? So you really have to know what those splits are for different platforms. Is there a place to go to find out this information? Or is it just kind of you have to do your own research? Now, the good news here is if, if you're going to do that kind of research, you, you only have to look as far as a flat fee per service aggregator. They, they will all have it listed in their frequently asked questions on their websites. Um, you could call them or email them and, and they'll give you the splits. And, and the cool thing about these splits with um, transactional video on demand platforms, they're consistent across the board. So it's not like one aggregator has a better deal than another aggregator. Mm. And that's by design. Oh, nice. So how, like from a percentage of the budget for a film, what percentage should be put into marketing? I totally love this question because it, you, you, you somehow like got into my soapbox or got me on my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't get into somebody's soapbox. You got me on my soapbox. <laughs> and on my soapbox, you know, this is where we look as far as major motion picture studios. Like if you're releasing, you know, you've probably seen this before, like they release a $100 million film, but they spend $100 million in prints and advertising. Why the heck is it as independent filmmakers, we devote our entire budget to just making the product in the hopes that somebody discovers it or in the hopes that somebody comes, you know, comes across and saves the day? Uh-uh. You know, we got to look at it. We got to look at it just like the studios look at their own product. So with our product, if I'm making a $50,000 backyard indie, I want to devote $25,000 of the $50,000 budget to marketing and publicity. And guess what? You don't have to move a ton of units to move 50,000. In fact, it's like, you know, given the math scenario I, I mentioned earlier, uh, it's like half of that. So there you go. So 50%. That sounds shocking to a lot of filmmakers that you're saying 50% of the budget should go toward marketing. I mean, that, that's a shocking number. I mean, I'm really just grabbing that, taking a yeah. look. I'm taking a, you know, I'm taking a page from what the major motion picture studios do. And, and so, 
you know, and I'm sure there's variation to all of this stuff, just like anything in life. But, but really, as an independent filmmaker, that's not your inclination. I can even tell, you know, just based on your response, um, and I assume that you've had these thoughts about your own projects. Uh, of course, that's a scary scenario. But what you're going to do by incorporating your own marketing and publicity strategy in your own motion picture release is you're going to buy yourself leverage. And imagine going into a prospective distributor negotiation when you can lay it out on the table that you already have your marketing budget set and you know exactly how that money is going to be spent. At that point, you can say exactly right to the distributor and say, all right, well, I'm already doing all this stuff. What are you going to do that's equal or greater to the effort that I'm already putting into this thing? And then then you have leverage, right? Mm -hmm. Then they're like, oh my gosh, this person's probably going to make some money. I want to be part of this. How can I buy my way in? This is what the distributors are going to start thinking. Now, this, again, assumes that you make a really good product. Um, if, the, if the film's mediocre, you know, you're not going to have a lot of leverage. So you got you to still tell a really good story. You got to execute. You got to have high production value. But I'm assuming that that stuff's already in place. And if you already have that stuff in place and you combine that with a marketing and distribution strategy that you can control, then you're a really powerful player. And you don't need somebody else to give you credibility because you've already done the work. You already have credibility. Now you just got to get the meetings so you can find the right partner if you want to have a partner. That's, that's amazing. Uh, I'm not sure if you are familiar with Diane Bell. We've had her on the show a few times. And she uh, talks about a producer of marketing and distribution, uh, somebody that you hire that specializes in this early in the process, like in development. You should bring in this PMD. Have you heard of that? Do you know anybody that does this specifically for feature films? Well, PMD as a, as a com concept was originally coined by a guy named John Reese who wrote a great book called Think Outside the Box Office. And, I, and I've met John on quite a few occasions. He's a great guy. Um, so I think conceptually it makes sense because we realize that, you know, like, like I've said like three times so far, it, the landscape's changed. We've seen it happen in music. We've seen it happen in publishing. Um, and what a PMD does is it, it just helps you get thinking about your promotion and distribution strategy during the making of your film. It, it, I think initially we thought, you know, the concept of PMD is that that person would do all of this stuff on their own. Um, but in truth, I think what they serve is a really good person on your team who can help coordinate this. Either if you're going to do a complete self-distribution uh, deal, if you're going to do a traditional distribution deal, or if you're going to do a hybrid distribution deal, uh, your PMD would serve as point to help you with all of that stuff. Actually relying on one person to handle an entire, you know, marketing and release strategy on their own, um, in my opinion, would be really taxing on that person. And, and mm. I don't know if that's possible. Ah, that's interesting. Um, so, all right. Um, what about a sales agent? Is that someone that you should be looking for before you seek distribution? Is it easy to get a sales agent these days? Well, if you have a good film, you're going to find that most everybody wants to distribute it. And, and I'm not even kidding about this. Like there's people, there are distribution companies that will go to the American film market on the second week because they know independent filmmakers, especially first time filmmakers are tired. They're not finding the deals. So what these companies do is they go in there and they look for the tired people and then they just pick up whatever the heck they can in the hopes of throwing it against the wall to see what sticks. And filmmakers are all too happy to give up their product 
um, because they're tired and, and they want the validation. But the validation does not pay your bills, right? Your ego does not fill your bank account. So when it comes to working with a sales agent, if you have a good product, a sales agent is going to look at that and they're going to look at it from a perspective of, can I sell this and make money on it? Because a sales agent gets paid based on commission. It's a good opportunity for you as a filmmaker if, first and foremost, you know exactly how much money you want to make with your film and you can see how the sales agent may fit into that game plan. But if you go into it blindly and you don't have a game plan, then you're going to fall into the trap that 99% of every other filmmaker falls into, which is like, oh my gosh, somebody's interested in my film. Of course I'll sign on the line that's dotted. And next thing you know, you're stuck in creative accounting and you never get paid. So again, you know, from, from, the, from the start of this interview, I just want to make it clear, I'm here to help you avoid the shenanigans. And the way you avoid shenanigans is by knowing exactly what you want out of your project. You know, you have your plan A in place. And like I said, if a plan B happens and it's a spectacular result, then more power to you. I would love it, you know, if you end up being the next big Hollywood success story. But if not, you're still going to go into this plan that's independent of a sales agent or anybody else. Um, but the way that I would use a sales agent is in the context of international distribution. So what I might recommend is you do what's called a hybrid distribution strategy where you retain domestic digital and you really execute on the plan that we've been talking about this whole conversation. And then later on, you find an international sales agent that can represent your film overseas. And what they're going to do is they're going to go from territory to territory to territory, making transactions everywhere they go. Um, and that, that can be you know the best of both worlds with your film. I got a question on the international uh, part. There um, he is. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm right now. <laughs> Hopefully you get to that point where you can go international with your film. What do you have to figure on? Like I'm thinking closed captioning or the language barrier. Um, if somebody were to get uh, an American or an English made film into a country where they don't speak English, what do you have to plan for when you do that? I, I would budget anywhere from like $5 the whole way up to like fifteen or eighteen dollars for subtitles, and and by, and I don't mean just you know five dollars or fifteen or eighteen. I mean per minute, right? So yep. five dollars per minute can probably get you, you know, one of the very common languages, and the eighteen dollars per minute will probably get you some obscure language. And I'm just talking about subtitles. If you're doing voiceover dubs um, with international, you know, foreign speaking uh, actors. Uh, mm -hmm. That's going to be even more pricey because now you got a bunch of actors that you got to pay. Uh, this, incidentally, your question is a good one because it, it also leads us to to why the market, especially overseas, is so saturated with Christmas dog movies or uh, you know girl with horse movies or or these kinds of things. And 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 so like think about this for a second. You got a family friendly uh, girl who has a horse movie um, that usually appeals to like tween girls. This thing has international appeal because there's a lot of scenes where it's just a horse running through the fields mm -hmm. or the Christmas dog movie. Uh, any scene with the dog, the dog can speak any language you want it to speak and the lips don't move. Um, <laughs> another reason why you see a, a proliferation of action movies overseas, because there's so many scenes that don't require any sort of dialogue. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting question because. At that point, you gotta you gotta figure like if you're gonna release your film in France, and I'm just using that as an example. So you got a sales agent that sells to a distribution company in France. That distribution company then has ties to the local French TV, whatever that is, 
And now you got to come up with dubs for whatever reason. So now you got the cost of the dubs, you got the cost of the deliveries, you got the cost of any additional mastering or QC that goes with that. Um, that end entity is going to take their cut. That distribution company is going to take their cut. That sales agent is going to take their cut. There might even be a domestic distributor here in the U.S. If you decide not to self-distribute, it's going to take their cut. And then if there's anything left over after everybody takes their cut and all the expenses are recouped, then you might get paid. And the problem there is, is sometimes it's, a, it's one of economics. If that deal is only $10,000 and every expense that I just mentioned equals $9,000, now you've made $1,000 off an entire country. Mm. That's so painful to a lot of filmmakers, <laughs> which is why I keep emphasizing that you need to come up with your own uh, domestic distribution strategy that you can control so that if you are fortunate enough to make money overseas, it's all icing on the cake. And by the way, we haven't even talked about Netflix in this scenario because more and more Netflix wants to have worldwide rights for one or two years. And that throws sort of a wrench in the gears of, of your entire international strategy. So the good news there is if Netflix wants that, they're going to have to pay for it. Um, but the bad news there is if Netflix wants that uh, and, and they're not paying for it, then you know you have to decide whether or not you want the Netflix deal. So yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. My head's spinning after that. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, you, you kind of want to get to that point where your movie's going to go international, but then, wow, it, it's a whole new box of worms, but it could be one that comes with a box of money too. It, it really could. And I mean, that's, that's the thing with all of this, like every release strategy is a little bit different. Every film is different. Um, what worked with one may not work with another, but your goal, I think, is an independent filmmaker that's working to level up your career is first and foremost, this is about you, your business, and your family, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, what are your goals and how are you going to work to achieve those goals, um, you know, again, without signing crappy distribution deals? But at the same time, as you level up your career, you're also going to need to, you also want to build relationships with people, especially on the international side, that you can trust and people that you like, that you can collaborate with, that you can get into conversations long before you even go into production on your future projects. The problem is if you haven't gone down that road ever, you don't have credibility yet. Mm -hmm. So you're just another like, you know, a first timer filmmaker that, that nobody knows. So this is going to take time. This is going to take not just one feature film, but you're going to have to make a long-term plan where you're not just, you know, where, where you're focused on maybe five feature films in the future, five films that are, targeted to the same sort of audience that you can really start to build a, a business in that regard. And, and that's when you start to see, you know, the professionals separate themselves from the amateurs when they start thinking bigger like that. How early on in your film should you think about uh, the distribution? Because just hearing you talk, different films sell and, and some maybe don't like a horror film sells differently than the girl with the pony film. Um, where should you start thinking about your uh, your marketing and your distribution while you're making the film? Or I'd, I'd go even sooner than that, right? The minute you decide that you want to make a certain film, start thinking about it then. Because, okay. like, look, I, I would love it if you actually do make your basket weaving film. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know if the market's going to support that. I mean, you could argue, like, yeah, the basket weaving society of whatever will probably support that film. I don't know if that exists, by the way. Yeah, well, um, I get but, it. A niche audience as opposed to yeah. a, a global audience. 
And look, a niche audience can support a film. If you make a $50,000 backyard indie and that audience for that film has a yearly trade show that everybody gets together, like like beekeepers, right? If you were making a beekeeping documentary, mm-hmm. your bullseye target audience is probably people in the beekeeping community. But then as you move past that, it's going to be people that are interested in documentaries that just like interesting subject matters. Mm-hmm. And, and if you move past that, it's going to be people that are interested in like environmental topics because the bees keep the world moving. So there's a lot of different things that you can start thinking about, but you start with that bullseye. You start with that goal. How many units do I need to sell to make this make sense? Will my core target audience that would be most interested in the subject matter, can they support that? And then you start thinking, well, how can I make this easier on myself? And that's where I go back to the idea of casting. Because casting, in my opinion, for a narrative feature is marketing expenses paid up front. You know, the example of Brad Pitt, right? Brad Pitt, you put him in a movie, it's because he can get butts in the seats. You're not going to see Brad's acting, although it's not bad, I don't think. Mm. He's a pretty charismatic guy. I think we can all agree on that. But he's also a star. And that star power brings people, it it brings the audience, it it motivates the audience to take action. Um, But you can do that on a smaller scale. Like, let's say we're doing a documentary and I'm doing one on beekeeping. I might choose... Um, to go after the top beekeeping subject matter experts in the world and interview them. Because what that does is it buys credibility right in your movie. It bakes it right in. And that's stuff that you can leverage later for publicity, um, for social media shout outs, for people to do email blasts on your behalf. All of this stuff can help you as you work to achieve your financial goal. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> when I when I hear it, uh, no, seriously, like, yeah, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you think that, you know, it hits your target audience and, uh, but sometimes you just need to be told the simple truth. And, um, a lot of people don't think about that. You know, they think I'm going to sell it throughout the whole world. Maybe you need to find where in the world your audience is. I like that advice. I, well, I used to think that way too. I mean, this, you know, we're having this conversation and it sounds like, I know we're kind of just meeting each other for the first time. And I'm sure some of your listeners are hearing from me for the first time. But everything that I'm sharing with you today comes after, you know, well over, oh gosh, at this point, I'm probably approaching 20 years in this industry. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I started out when people were still shooting on film at the end of the, uh, at the beginning of the 2000s, the end of the ni- 1990s or whatever. Um, you know, I was inspired by Kevin Smith and Robert Rodriguez and all those guys that were, you know, really figuring out ways to break through at a time when independent film, you know, what it, the big thing that you focused on back then was just getting a darn thing made because getting a film made shot on film was so prohibitive. But now the market's so saturated with digitally produced backyard indies that, you know, it's really hard to rise above the noise unless you take time to come up with a plan. Right. But it's inspirational hearing you talk because it it makes you think about the film a different way. It makes me think differently uh, than ways I've thought in the past. So, and, and I'm certainly not the marketing expert or, you know, like I, I can hold the camera and everything, but, you know, start making sales. That's not, that's not my forte, but when you break it down the way you did, I love it. And it just makes you, uh, you know, take it piece by piece and put it together. And then hopefully you, you end up making this big sale. Well, let's not even talk about big sales. Let's just talk about small sales, right? Because we go back to that thing. I want to make a hundred thousand. I, that means I and, I, and I do it on Google Play, 70-30 split. I'm selling for 10 bucks a pop. I uh-huh. keep seven bucks, 14,286 units. Okay, I get all that. But even if you're going lower budget, like you got 
$10,000 and you, and you want to make it back here on India, you've done some video experience, you've made a few short films, so you feel pretty confident about your ability to light a scene. You feel really confident about your ability to never compromise on set safety. I feel like I always have to qualify what I'm saying by that. You're not going to make, you know, some sort of action film with lots of stunts for 20 grand, but you can make, you can make interesting films. It, it could be a horror film. It could be, you know, the Christmas dog movie. It could be any number of things that you could probably do for $20,000 if you were really, really smart about it. And let's use that scenario. Let's say instead of like getting Brad Pitt, the, the person that you can get is your local newscaster that's on the nightly news and he or she is there because they always wanted to be an actor, but somehow they fell in the news. So now you cast them maybe in a secondary role, maybe for a bit part, but now you've baked in publicity and notoriety into your own project. And even though it's a backyard indie made for pocket change, you can still go out and move units of that in popular platforms, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, etc. And guess what? You don't have to move as many units to recoup $20,000 as you would if you, had, if you were trying to recoup $100,000 or a million dollars or more. Mm -hmm. So anytime you can go into black, even if it is uh, an independently produced backyard indie made on pocket change, always, you know, never compromising set safety, et cetera, et cetera, you can still make it a solid business. And guess what? If you can prove that you can create profitability on a smaller scale project, then what you're going to do with your next project is you're going to level it up. You know, maybe the next one's not pocket change. Maybe the next one is, you know, the wealthy car dealer in your hometown that decides to give you $100,000 because you've already proven yourself on the smaller project. And that's what we're getting at here. We're, t we're talking about, you know, a long-term uh, career that you look at strategically as opposed to just saying, hey, I'm going to make one film and hopefully hit it out of the park like Kevin Smith mm -hmm. or Robert Rodriguez. Because I think, I, think the, I think the current marketplace doesn't necessarily support that anymore because mm -hmm. there's so much competition. So, so be aware of the times too, it would be a good piece of advice things. And I've seen this with other filmmakers there, you know, oh, I just, they remember blockbuster video and they, they kind of want to emulate that, but that doesn't exist anymore. That whole walking into a blockbuster and shopping for films. And I still see people who kind of shoot for that, even though it doesn't exist. Do you, you know what I mean? They're not looking at this video on demand and stuff. They, they know it's there, but their main thing is to have a physical DVD in their hand or a physical Blu-ray. Well, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I have this thing, I, I have a site called filmmaking stuff and that's my primary website where I share, you know, I share this kind of stuff, pragmatic filmmaking information. So you can make market and sell your movie without the middleman. And by middleman, I mean like a third party that has mm -hmm. to give you permission to be successful in the marketplace. I think those days are done. Um, the other thing I have is Filmmaking Stuff HQ, uh, which is a membership site where, you know, it's frankly a community of people that think very pragmatically about their motion picture product. And it's funny that when I have these conversations with you and you bring up stuff like, you know, Blockbuster Video and how that myth is still perpetuated in the industry, I honestly know or think um, that if I went that direction and tried to sell that, you know, and I kept trying to perpetuate that myth, I'd probably get a lot more members in the Filmmaking Stuff HQ community. Um, but I would feel terrible about it. And I don't think people would get the results um, that, that would, you know, give them career longevity. So my ongoing mission, again, uh, is to help people avoid the shenanigans and actually make a real business out of this. 
And so they can go check out filmmakingstuff.com and filmmakingstuffhq.com. Do it now while you're listening uh, on your phone, I say. <laughs> I've been poking around the website. Um, the Filmmaking Stuff HQ is a membership site. Do you want to talk a little bit about that membership and then talk about uh, what the Filmmaking Stuff site is? Yeah, I think, you know, I think in this conversation, I tried to fit so much in, um, you know, it's probably making some people's head spin. And, and that's, uh, that's just the nature of what it is. There's a lot of moving parts in this business, but it's, it's what I've tried to do with Filmmaking Stuff and what I've gotten pretty close to doing, I think, with Filmmaking Stuff HQ is demystifying like all these moving parts and all these things that have to happen to help you get closer to your goals. Um, so what I mean in a practical sense, if you go to filmmaking stuff, there's about 500 different articles. A lot of them, pretty much all of them, are focused on entrepreneurial filmmaking and self-distribution. And filmmaking stuff HQ kind of takes that to the next level where we realize that there's some very specific problems that all filmmakers encounter so in Filmmaking Stuff HQ, what we've done is we've created video training uh, with the philosophy of one problem product solution. Because I know you're busy, I'm busy, I'm part of a few membership sites that I pay for and I hardly ever log into um, because the courses are so robust and overwhelming um, that I don't even know where to begin and it's going to take a whole weekend. Uh, with Filmmaking Stuff HQ, the way that we've designed it is around action plans. So, for example, you know, there, there's one that I'm partnered with on Tom Malloy, um, who, who has also been on your show, where he's a film funding expert. He's raised over $25 million, and, it, and it's called, like, Find Film Investors. And it's, and it's a pretty quick, uh, straight-to-the-point, five-video, you know, a course that consists of five very specific videos of the steps that Tom Malloy uses to find prospective investors. Um, and we do the same sort of thing for distribution. Uh, and other topics that a filmmaker might encounter. So it's one problem product solution. And the whole goal there is to give you just the exact knowledge you need to help you take things to the next level, or at the very least, unstuck yourself um, from whatever you're stuck in. And can people contact you directly on that website? Yeah, they absolutely can. And, and my email address is very easy too. It's just jason at filmmakingstuff.com. Well, Jason, okay. thanks so much for joining us today. Fascinating information. We'd love to have you back. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is created by Forrest Day Jr., the host of Rolling Tape on YouTube, and by me, Jeffrey Michael Bays, author of Suspense with a Camera and Between the Scenes. Both of those books are available in bookstores now. Be sure to tweet us at BorgasFilm or email info at Borgas.com if you'd like to suggest topics that you would like us to cover here on the podcast. It's all things filmmaking. We'll see you next time. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is a production of Borgas Networks 2019.